Welcome to Resilience Unraveled, featuring scientists, practitioners, experts and everyday people with knowledge, tips, experience and great stories to share to help you get a grip of your life. We'll give you insights into a range of subjects, including reducing your stress, improving your emotional intelligence, health and well-being and controlling your negative thoughts. By doing this, you'll be able to improve your resilience, confidence, control and perform better every day to live a more productive and purposeful life. For a free resilience ebook, listen through to the end for details. Here's your host, Dr. Russell Thackeray. So today I'm talking to Kenneth Miller. Now, Kenneth's got a really interesting and unusual take on resilience because he's worked in a particular scenario where resilience courage um, and, the, and human, the human spirit is tested to extremes and so Kenneth's got some hopefully some very interesting stories to talk about and, um, and is releasing a book called War Torn which is stories of courage, love and resilience and uh, very much looking forward to talking to him about the book but also about his experiences and, and how resilience and, and the human spirit prevails in times of extre- extreme hardship and adversity. So Kenneth, hi. Hi, Russell. Thank you for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. And where do we find you today in the world? I am currently based in Amsterdam. So I am in my apartment looking out at a canal at the moment. It would be, it would be um, a shame if you weren't yeah, being in Amsterdam. <laughs> Is that even possible not to see a canal in Amsterdam? It's challenging. That's true. That's true. <laughs> it's a beautiful city, I have to say. Yeah. Well, so thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really interested to talk to you. I've been looking forward to this for a little while. I haven't seen the information you sent us. So, um, so Ken, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little about you and your journey. Sure. It really has been a journey, too. I'm a psychologist. Uh, and for the last, I, I'm not exactly sure what the count is, I guess about 25 years, I've been working with communities affected by armed conflict in different parts of the world. Now, for for a good part of that time, my home base was in a you know in, in a couple of different universities, uh, primarily in California. So I did a lot of my field work, my research, uh, in the summers and in you know during a month in winter time. Uh, before becoming an academic, I directed a clinic for Bosnian refugees for two years in Chicago, and before that. Uh, I did my two years of my graduate work, my graduate research in uh, Guatemala, working in the highlands there, uh, where it was really the tail end of a genocide against the Mayan Indian population. And and then across the border in Mexico, I spent a year uh, working in refugee camps for Guatemalans uh, and living for part of each week in, in the camps. Uh, these were Guatemalans who had crossed over from Guatemala into Mexico. So my experience has been uh, working in different parts of the world, and more recently, in the last several years, I've done a lot more work in uh, Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, uh, Lebanon, with uh, refugees from the war in Syria. So my journey's sort of taken me all over, um, with refugees, people still in settings of armed conflict. And then within all of that, I've played various roles. So I was a professor, a researcher, a consultant. When I worked at the clinic with Bosnians, I was a therapist. And then in the middle of all that, I took up filmmaking as a side passion 
and ended up making a documentary film about the impact of war on a frontline village in eastern Sri Lanka. And the film examined the ways that people had put their lives together uh, in the wake of a massacre. So I guess a lot of different hats, but the common theme to all of it is looking at the ways that people are affected by war and, and displacement and, and the remarkable courage and resilience uh, that, that I've seen everywhere I've worked in the ways that people put their lives together again in the wake of tragedy. Right. So I'm guessing, I'm, I'm guessing you witness humans almost at their best and their worst in, in that process. I think I think that the Canadian poet Anne Michael said it best. You know that the war brings out both um, the which I think she said that it brings out the, the rotten part of the fruit and the fruit that it brings out the worst that we're capable of and, and the very best. Um, and you know, and I I, I I think you know my work sort of ha has confronted me continually with both both sides of that. I've seen remarkable uh, destruction and acts of evil, but I've also seen a, a kind of courage uh, that is so inspiring. It's really what's kept me in the work over the years, the, the, the de dedication and courage of people who, who could have gotten out but didn't. I, I'll give you an example just to, to illustrate that. Sure. Last time I was in Iraq, I, I was doing co-leading a training with a colleague of mine um, on, uh, on working with torture survivors. And torture in Iraq has just been rampant, practiced by all sides. Sometimes it has an aim. Sometimes the only aim is just to cause cause pain. Mm. But we were working in particular with a, with a group of doctors and lawyers who, who worked with uh, torture sur survivors, people who'd been accused of a crime falsely and then tortured into confessing to their guilt. And um, one of the lawyers, sort of the senior lawyer in the training, um, we were chatting over lunch and, uh, and I, I, you know, he was telling me about how dangerous it is at the time. You know, he said he would leave work, he would leave his home for work every morning, and he never knew if he'd make it home alive because of all the bombings. Wow. Uh, so he'd kiss his wife goodbye and not know if he'd see her again. But also he would get death threats continually for, for what he was doing. And I said to him, you know, look, you've got the resources. Why don't you get out? Why don't you leave? You could. And he laughed and he said, you know, how could I leave? This, this is my home. You know, this is, but what he, was, what he was really saying was more than that, this is my home, because of course he could have gotten out. I, he went on to explain that there were so few lawyers willing to take on the cases of alleged torture survivors that uh, he just couldn't bring himself to stop, to stop doing the work that he was doing. He felt so profoundly committed to justice and to making his country a better place. It's not the kind of person you think about when you hear about Iraqis. We think about war and terrorists and ISIS and all of this. But, you know, that, those are just the images that make it into the news. Yes. Yes, it's, the, it's, it's sort of ordinary people who are the, the backbone of the, of, the organ, of, of the country, really, isn't it? They're the, they're the, they're the majority. And it, they're the majority everywhere, yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, that sense of purpose that some people have, isn't it? That surety, that... That idea, the belief, whether it's just 
doing your thing or doing your bit or making a difference or whatever it might be. It can be on a very grand scale or it can be a very you know very local scale concept. But it's 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 something that feeds the human spirit, isn't it? The sense of purpose, the sense of knowing what you're doing and where you're going. I, I think that's right. I think I think purpose and meaning are what uh, really what we should be striving for in our lives. You know, I mean, there's a lot of talk about striving for happiness. I and, and you know, look, I, I like happiness as much as anybody, but I sort of think happiness is a byproduct. Uh, that when you aim too directly for it, you often miss the target. I, I think when we strive for meaning and purpose, that happiness kind of comes out of that. Yes. Uh, and so that's sort of more what I what I often uh, aim for in my own life and what I've seen in, 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 in other folks. You know, I think about my friend Rana. He's the guy I talk about in, in the Sri Lanka chapter of the book. Uh, beautiful young man, just just the most beautiful spirit. He he ran a small nonprofit uh, in the very eastern part of the country. Uh, that worked with survivors both of the tsunami that hit there in 2000, what was that, Boxing Day 2004, and um, also with survivors of the Civil War. It was just a terribly hit area by all kinds of tragedy. And, you know, his wife and kids lived in Colombo, a 12-hour ride away at the time. And, you know, he got paid poverty wages, and he lived in a one-room cinder block, uh, you know, apartment. And... You know, he did this because he was so passionately committed to this small nonprofit and the, and the work that it did. They would go places that no one else would go. And so, I, you know, I worked with them for a little while and we ended up making the film together, among other projects. And, you know, we were in frontline villages where other, other big NGOs weren't going. And why did he do that? You know, it, it was just the love of... of what he was doing, that kind of focused commitment. Yeah, it's fascinating because actually purpose is often seen as a very selfish thing, but but actually it's manifests itself in this idea of serving or this idea of being seeing yourself part of a larger, larger organization and making making connections with other people and, and and like you say, you're going in going and working with others. Um, yeah. And that's yeah, the I, that's I mean, the point, we, isn't we, it? Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, so that's the point, and that's where happiness flows from, isn't it, the sense of seeing yourself as part of a wider um, community, uh, maybe community is the wrong word, but um, sense of this wider organism, I think. I think you're right. I think, you, you know, Russell, I think you said something really important there, which is that in addition to purpose and meaning, I also think that you said being part of a wider organiz or, or organization or something larger than oneself, I, I think that connection is also what gives us a sense of purpose and meaning you know the connections we have to others that we care about uh, it's funny i was just talking about this with um with a colleague recently i had written a a, a post on uh I, I write a a blog for the online magazine psychology today called the refugee experience and i had written a post recently about the power of stories and I, I, I told the story, it's actually the introduction to the book. I told the story uh, about a young friend of mine who's uh, an incredibly gifted musician from Syria. He's a young Syrian journalist uh, and musician. And he, he, um, 
he wanted to get out of Syria. It, 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 you know, things had gotten so dangerous, but he, he was kind of trapped between the Islamic State on one side and the government forces on the other, and he couldn't reach a legal crossing. So nine times in a row, he, he tried to cross illegally by slipping through a barbed wire fence, and on the 10th time, he got captured, and he got beaten by Turkish border guards to within, you know, you know, inches of his life. Mm. And then they threw him back through the barbed wire fence back into Syria. Anyway, by now you'd think he'd give up on the idea, but his family sent him money from, he had some family in Germany and he found a good smuggler and he made his way across. And he eventually made his way to this training that I was co-leading for Syrian journalists uh, on the other side of the border. Um, and we got to know each other there. Um, my part in the training was sort of teaching them how to take care of themselves psychologically, but also how to interview, you know, trauma survivors without re-traumatizing them. And we went out to dinner one night, the two of us. There was something about, some energy about him that was really sort of remarkable and special. And he's a musician and I'm a musician, so we kind of connected. So we were having dinner and he shared this story with me about what he'd gone through on this horrible, freezing, cold, violent night in a, in a field getting beaten by these border guards. And, uh, and we just talked for hours about this experience. Anyway, a few days later, I was back in Amsterdam and he sent me a text message. He was still in uh, Turkey. And he was writing to thank me because just by listening to his story, somehow it had unburdened him. Yes. And he was able to uh, sleep again without you know, the, the intrusive images of that horrible night in, 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 the, in the violent, bloody field. And, you know, what I did for him was, you don't need a, a degree in psychology to do. It, it was just a human act. It's something that any of us can do for the people in our lives. I think what he, I just listened without judgment, uh, without, you know, pushing him away or, you know, shutting down. And I, I, I think that the, it's about that connection that when we feel connected and and and, and we had that connection um, I think that's when healing happens yeah. and I think that connection as we know is one of the major sources of resilience so I know we'll be talking about resilience today you know we often think of resilience as something that's inside of a person that you have more or less resilient resilience but actually more and more what we're learning about resilience is that it's less of a an individual trait and, and better understood as the product of um, what a person brings to a situation, but also what the environment brings to that situation. So when we look at people who are resilient, they're often people who have strong social connections yes. um, and different kinds of resources that allow them to survive. And a little later on, uh, you know, I'll share a couple of stories of some of the most resilient people I've met who, when you look at their life stories, shouldn't be okay but but they are okay they're more than okay yes and I, I absolutely get that and we've spoken about this on other podcasts about this need to to reach out to other human mm. beings because actually there's there's something innate in us to talk to each other and actually you know i often see it in, in, in work in organizations where a good leader will be the person that will reach out talk ask questions listen comment and just allow people to be themselves. And, and sometimes that's all people need, the opportunity to talk and just to express themselves. And I think that's where coaching is powerful in terms of resilience because it's that helping people determine the answers for themselves. Just No, I think you're, I think you're right. And it's interesting because you know, I've done some organizational consulting over the years 
and what you know sometimes I would get called in to do um, uh, stress management yeah. for uh, you know nonprofits and it was always really interesting to me because the you know if if you had leadership that was really healthy um, by and large, the organizations didn't need a whole lot of stress management coaching from the outside. Um, and people can certainly benefit from, you know, greater work-life balance and meditation and, and making sure they're taking care of their health and all these things. Uh, turning off smartphones at night. You know, all the kind of common sense stuff that you can read about on, on a million blogs. Yeah. But um, if the leadership was unhealthy and, and was itself one of the primary sources of stress then, you know, teaching people all these stress management techniques but sending them back to the same stress-inducing workplace was absurd. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was sort of a losing cause. Uh, but, you know, not terribly uncommon. No, it's the old analogy of um, taking the fish out of the meat of the dirty pool, cleaning the fish and putting them back in the dirty pool. <laughs> yeah. and, yeah, but, and it's interesting because we see that actually one of the interesting ways that we sometimes see that in, in, my, in my line of work in, in conflict and, and refugee camps, conflict settings and refugee camps. You know, when we, uh, when we work with kids, for example, um, there's, a, there's a big emphasis among uh, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, on doing group work with kids. Um, on the assumption that, um, you know, kids in refugee camps, kids in war zones are primarily stressed out because of what they've lived through during whatever war they've escaped from. But in fact, the research has shown really clearly um, that one of the primary ways that war affects kids is not just through direct exposure to bombs and rockets and, and bullets and the like, but actually by heightening family tensions and fam increasing family violence. Yes. So in fact, when you look at post-traumatic stress disorder in, among kids in refugee camps, you find that about half of it is linked to uh, the family environment and not directly to the war. Now, of course, it, it stems largely from the war stresses out the parents and then the parents can take that out on the kids. So there's a connection. But if you take kids and you give them an hour and a half of really fun recreational activities and then you send them back to a stressful or even traumatizing family environment without altering that, then you're doing exactly what you were saying, you know, which is, you know, taking the fish out and throwing it back into the, into the bad water. Um, and that's why the organization that I work for now, Warchild, we have a big emphasis on also working with families, working with parents to help them deal with their own stress as a way of helping kids. But you know, that, that's, that is ringing bells all over the place with me because um, it takes me back to John Bal Balby and I, Antonio Bifulco and their work on attachment theory and mm -hmm. people how to understand, yeah. you know, if you want to understand how to be a great parent, read, yeah. read about attachment theory because that's, you're absolutely right, this, this nurturing, this, this series of um, calm, comfortable relationships are the key, aren't they? And you can have the water on environment, but a strong family unit. And that can give people a strong sense of attachment and give them, give them the, the sort of fundamentals of resilience for the future. It's so funny that you mentioned Bowlby because the, the, the book that rocked my world when I was an, uh, a university student was a Bowlby book. That yeah. It was a series of lectures he'd given in England. Uh, I think it was, and it was, the, the, the book was called The, uh, the making and breaking of affectional bonds or uh, affectional bonds, and it's, it was really it was, it was sort of an introduction to attachment theory, and and what Bowlby demonstrated, I think, 
so profoundly, and all the research has, has supported this since then, Mary Ainsworth and all these other wonderful researchers who've tested out attachment theory, is if you want resilient kids, you want resilient adults, the single most powerful thing you can do is give them securely attached infancies and early childhoods. Yeah. Give them responsive parenting. Uh, and it's not, it's not a magical thing. It's parents who are able to respond appropriately to what their kids are needing, to read their messages, their signals, and, and respond appropriately. Now, of course, this is where high-stress environments come in, right? Whether it's inner-city uh, neighborhoods or, or refugee camps or war zones, uh, one of the really devastating things that they do is they stress out parents completely. And, yes. and so you end up impacting that early attachment relationship because parents are dealing with their own anxiety and depression and trauma, and that impacts kids. And this, I don't mean this as parent blaming. I think parents are often doing the very best that they can. Yeah. But, you know, they're living in conditions of, of danger and fear and, and deprivation. And, you know, the, the most wonderful parents in the world, if they're suddenly thrust in, in sort of chronically depriving and frightening environments, their parenting is going to be affected. And, and, that's, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because maybe, maybe I'm being unusually, unduly controversial here, but you can see almost where if you're not, you not getting the attachment you need from the, the family units, it's easy to turn and be radicalised or join different ideas of family, gangs, different groups and such like, where you get that feeling of attachment, sense, you know, social identity, personal identity. And I just wonder if you see that in camps as well. You see the sort of um, switching of allegiance almost from the family to a, a surrogate family almost. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I think we all have a, a profound, profound um, need for belonging and a, and a sense of, you know, a place where, where, we, where we matter and where our absence is, is deeply felt. We, we all want to belong. Now, you know, it, it, a lot of factors come into play, and, and I'm not an expert on sort of radicalization, but certainly what I've seen um, in, the, in, the, in the refugee camps, for example, is that, you know, even really securely attached kids, and of course, you know, nobody's really studied attachment uh, in, among Syrians in refugee camps yet. Yeah, it's pretty hard to do. But I mean, what, what you can sort of impressionistically at least see is that, then other factors come into play because even kids who are securely attached, even kids who feel like they have a, a secure, secure home. What you know, when I just got back from northern Lebanon, where we're working with we're working with Syrians who've been living in tents for up to four years. Their families aren't allowed to work. Um, they they you know they're living in poverty, and there's no sense of what the future could hold or that it could be better. So you're confined to, to these small tented communities. You live through winter and all of its harshness there. And you know, for 14, 15, 16 year old young people who like young people everywhere dream of some kind of a, a future, there is no future. Yes. So, and again, I have colleagues who study, you know, radicalization and it's not my, it's not my area, but what I would assume is that if that interaction, if kids don't feel like they really belong at home or have a deep sense of connection, and there's also this sense of, I have no future here, my life is just wasting away before me, I would imagine that would leave people particularly vulnerable to uh, radicalization and to uh, getting pulled into any kind of community where you feel like you have a purpose and a yes. sense of belonging and, and you're moving towards something. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, Ken, you're, it's fascinating talking to you, and, and I'm just conscious that um, our time today is slightly limited, and I, I, may, I want to make the most of it. So tell me more about the book, War Torn. Tell me why you decided to write it, first of all. Well, you know, over the years of, uh, of working in different war zones, I've always written, I call them dispatches. Uh, they're, they're long, kind of detailed letters back to family, friends, colleagues at home. And it's, it's largely been a way of, you know, when I, when I, you know, when I was in a refugee camp in, Mex- in Mexico or, you know, in, in Kabul working with, with, with Afghans, it was a way of sort of staying in touch with my community uh, in different parts of the world. And also when I would write these dispatches, people would write back and we'd have these really interesting conversations. I'd write about what I saw. And there was one particular moment where I realized that the writing was both therapeutic for me, but also really seemed to be interesting for a lot of the folks I was sending these out to. There was a story, uh, my colleague Pat Omidian, who ran a nonprofit in Kabul that did mental health and education work, we were sitting around having tea one day, and uh, she had told this story about uh, this. So she she was leading a, a, a workshop uh, up in up in the uh, I guess the northwest or the west of the country with a uh, and uh, it, it was a, it was a workshop for Afghans in in a in a Western NGO Western nonprofit on how to manage the distressing feelings that that came up in their work. They work with kids, war affected kids, and um, so. This one man in the workshop, he, stand, he stands up and he says, look, if we're going to talk about feelings, I want to tell you a story about feelings. So <laughs> Pat says, you know, sure, okay. And he captivates the room. He says, when, he tells a story about when he was a kid, his dad was a representative of the community and he got called one day. The police came to his house and they called his dad and they said, there's been a, you know, a, a, home, a series of homicides, you need to come with us as the representative. So... He brought his son along, the guy who was telling the story, and they went down to this house. And sure enough, they walk into this house, and it's just a, it's a nightmarish scene. There's, there's a, a man sitting on a chair holding a bloody machete, and he's holding his young son on his lap. His son is unharmed. But on the floor are his two young daughters, who he's killed, his wife, who he's killed, and his mother-in-law, who he's killed. And the police just look at this scene and and the guy telling the story is a, a child at the time, but he's standing there with his father looking at all this. And uh, the police said to the guy, well, you know, wh- wh- why why did you do this? And then why didn't you run away? And, and, and the guy said, look, I found out, I heard a rumor, basically, that my wife was having uh, an affair with two men. And if you go to their homes and here's their names, you'll find I killed them as well. So I... I killed my my wife because she was bringing dishonor on the family, and I killed my mother-in-law because she probably knew about it and didn't tell me. And I I killed my daughters because they probably knew about it and didn't tell me. But I was going to kill my son, except when I when I, I was holding him and holding the machete, I looked in his face and and I saw a reflection of my own face. He looks like me, and I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So saved by a by a dose of narcissism, yeah. and. Uh, so the police said, well, all right, well, why didn't you run away? You knew we'd come get you. And he said, well, no, 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 I knew what you'd do. If, if I ran away, you'd arrest some innocent guy, and then you'd charge his family, you know, uh, money to let him go. And, and I, I didn't want to see some innocent family pay a bribe to get their family member out. 
So the guy's a model of, of integrity, right? So anyway, the police, there's just too much bloodshed in this case, and he goes to jail. And, uh, you know, everyone in the room, at first they were horrified when they heard about the blood, as the guy's telling the story. They heard about all these killings. But um, when Pat said to everyone, well, you know, how do you feel about the story? They said, well, actually, you know, we think he acted honorably because yeah. he, he restored honor to his family by, you know, by killing his wife and, 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 and the others. And Pat said, yeah, but you know, children were killed in this, uh, innocent people. And they said, well, we don't know that they were innocent. They kept it a secret from him. And, uh, you know, Pat was pretty stunned by this. Anyway, the story continues very briefly. While the guy's serving his time in jail, a young woman in the community heard about what he'd done. And she was so moved about how he had restored his family's honor and not run away that she started corresponding with him and eventually married him when he got out of jail. Wow. So, you know, again, Pat asked the group how they felt about this story, and they said, look, we, this, is a, this is a good story. This, this, this is a story with a happy ending, uh, because the guy gets married again at the end of the story, and he's restored his, his honor. And that story really shook me up. It shook kind of to the core, because I thought, you know, uh, that you know, something is as fundamental as uh, taking the life of family members, which, you know, you would imagine is, is kind of a universally abhorred thing, mm. is not universally abhorred. That under certain situations, in certain contexts, it can be a form of restoring honor to the family. Yes. And that, you know, one of the real themes in the book, of course, is about how in many ways we're much more alike than we are different. And I have other stories from Afghanistan that, you know, my, my hesitance in, in, in telling that story is it, it, that paints a picture of Afghans is, is so brutal. I have, you know, in the story, in the chapter on Afghanistan, there's lots of stories of Afghans who do find that kind of thing abhorrent and, you know, who are among the most courageous uh, community-oriented people I know. But that story really shook me up because it, it showed me that a lot of my assumptions about what's universal, uh, I had to go back and revisit and realize that culture plays a profound role on shaping very basic core values. And I shared that with people in, in, in a dispatch and got a lot of feedback about it. Any, anyway, that story, I realized that I had been collecting stories about the impact of war and culture and mental health over the years. And when I began thinking of bringing together in a book, what I realized is that 95% of what's been written about the impact of war on mental health is about soldiers. It's about veterans. Ah, right. And if you Google it, if you get on Amazon UK or Amazon.com and you type war and mental health or trauma war... Uh, what you'll find is it's almost exclusively about combatants and, and former combatants. Now, that's not a critique because I think that's enormously important. I think we send young men and women to battle very readily and have very little understanding or capacity for how to help them heal from what they've been through and reintegrate into life after battle. So that's important. But what's missing from that is the experience of civilians. And beginning in World War II, and really ever since then, civilians have become by far the majority of victims of armed conflict. 
Uh, and the numbers range, you know, from just over half to up to 90% of, depending on the particular war, uh, the victims are, are civilians. And yet their voices are not there in the literature. And so then I realized in a way I had a unique window uh, into uh, the experience of civilians caught up in wars, violent power. Uh, and I wanted to share their stories, both the dark side, but also the remarkable stories of healing that I've witnessed and been part of and resilience. So, yeah. so, so Ken, who would you say the book's written for? And what sort of style is it written in, would you say? It's, I tried to write this, so you know, as, as a former academic, now I'm in a nonprofit as a researcher, but I, I tried to write this in a very non-academic style. And it's the, the feedback that I've gotten uh, and the reviews so far are pretty consistent that it, it talks about psychological experiences and constructs in very accessible sort of everyday language. And that was really my goal. I wanted to use, I wanted to try and use a novelist's prose to talk about nonfiction. Right. So for me, writing in ways, it's, it's a series of stories from the field, and, and each chapter is organized by a different country. Right. And, and so it's written in a way where it's really not aimed primarily at an academic or clinical audience, but at sort of everyday folks who want to understand the, the impact of war, and also who are interested in the ways that um, you know, culture shapes our experience. Now, having said that, I also think it's a useful book for, you know, courses on, on you know, global mental health and anthropology and, and psychology. I think it's a useful supplemental text for that. But it, it was really written for a, a, a much, you know, a much broader audience than that. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm desperate to read it, actually. The more you talk about it, I've sort of scanned the um, pre on the on your website and such like, but I'm going to definitely dive into that later on. Um and I like the way you've you've described how you've organised it into different into different countries. Do you? And you mentioned earlier that that you talked about some of the most resilient people you come across. Could you yeah. maybe just? And I know we're, we need to keep an eye on your time and then looking after that. But are there a couple of stories about some um, people who have been particularly resilient, and or what you think illustrates the subject of resilience from your experience? Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, one is a young Afghan woman. Um, who I ended up meeting and working with in California. Uh, her father, who just recently passed away, Hassan Kakar, was just a internationally beloved and renowned historian. Um, he was arrested during the Soviet Soviet occupation from seventy nine to eighty nine. He was in one of the the most notorious jail in Afghanistan, Puli Charki, for five years. So Khwaga, who I, who I talk about briefly in the Afghanistan chapter. Um, she was a kid at the time, and she lived through the Taliban, she lived through the Soviets, and, you know, she used to make these regular treks with her family to the jail to visit her father, which was a terrifying place. This was a place where people routinely got tortured and executed. Uh, finally, when her family was able to get out, they left, but they couldn't all leave together. The Soviets and the Afghan army wouldn't allow you to, to leave. So they left one at a time, two at a time. You know, it, very secretively, they would leave, and when she was the last to go, and so when she left, she she was 15 years old, left the lights on in the house, made it look like people were in there, and then caught a bus, and she rode by herself to the border with Pakistan, and, you know, three times in a row, soldiers got on the bus, and they caught her and sent her back, 
Uh, and she was just the gutsiest, most courageous 15-year-old. Look, while well, most 15-year-olds in England or the U.S. are figuring out what sport to play, what class to take, what to do on the weekend, which film to see, yeah. you know, Juaro was figuring out how to cross the border from Afghanistan into Pakistan safely and get back and get to her family in Peshawar. And she did. She made it. And uh, so she lived through the Taliban, through the Soviets, gotten, gotten through all of that, made it to California, and uh, eventually earned a master's degree uh, in Indiana and is back in Afghanistan helping, you know, trying to rebuild the country. I can't, she's one of the, the brightest, funniest, healthiest people that I know. And here's someone who just lived through things that are, you know, none of us would imagine living through. So to, she, she's a model of resilience, but I, I don't, I don't understand her resilience solely in terms of like these, this inner strength that she has, which of course she does have, but she comes from a very loving family, a uh, very supportive family. She received a really warm and supportive welcome when she got to the U.S. And so there were all kinds of resources that fostered her resilience. Yeah. Uh, her outcome was not inevitable. Uh, it was the product of both what she brought, but also the environment and the circumstances that she uh, lived in. And you've, it's interesting. It, you've said this so many times, and I'm always taken with the old prisoner experiments, this idea of environment, culture, shaping us as individuals. Um, it's something we it's something we often disregard, and it's yeah. it is interesting when we're thinking about organisations, nonprofits, refugee camps. The, the culture that we exist within has a major part to play in our ability to to manage ourselves, isn't it? Yeah, oh, it's profound. You know, Malcolm Gladwell in in his book The Tipping Point, which which I just love. Um, he talked about this a lot. It, it's a really well well documented. Uh, phenomena, at least in Western psychology, that we tend to uh, attribute people's behavior or their state of their, their, their whatever they're saying or doing to something about them, internal to them. And we grossly underestimate the power of the context. Yeah. So when we see resilience, we go, that's a resilient person. We ignore the context. You can also think about it in mundane ways. We see somebody who, who um, cuts us off on, on, on the highway and we think, you know, what an idiot. You know, they're so inconsiderate. We don't say, gee, I wonder if they've got somebody sick at home or if they're racing to the hospital. Um, we, we tend not to take context into account. And, you know, I, I mean, I can tell you a very, very quick story uh, about how this can play out in, in very tragic ways clinically. And this, this is sort of a, a, this is a story from the book, but it's also an acknowledgement on my part of, of my own screw up. Um, when when I, I was working at the Bosnian Refugee Clinic, we had a woman. I wasn't seeing her yet. I didn't know about the case initially. I, I was directing the clinic. Um, one of our Bosnian staff was seeing her. It was a woman who had survived the worst violence in her village back in Bosnia. She came over with her husband and young son. And uh, they were living in a small one, but I guess studio apartment in, in Chicago. And... You know, she showed all the signs of PTSD, of trauma, of depression that all of our uh, clients showed who'd survived this war. And so we were treating her for that. And she just wasn't getting any better month after month after month. She just wasn't healing. And uh, one day we get a call from the local hospital 
they've, they've got this woman there. She doesn't speak English, but the janitor is translating. And, uh, and she's tried to kill herself. Can we come over? And we race over to the hospital. And the, the counselor says to me, look, I, I'm not sure why, but I have this suspicion that, you know, she may be experiencing abuse at home from her husband. Okay, now it makes sense. We go in to this room with her and I ask her very directly, uh, are you being hurt at home? And this normally very quiet woman bursts into tears and starts telling us nonstop, she can't stop talking, how for the last two years since they got to Chicago, uh, her husband has been sexually assaulting her in front of their child every day for two years and has been threatening to kill both of them if she tells anyone or tries to escape. Well, I got to tell you, I felt like a real idiot. I mean, here we were trying to treat her for war trauma. Yeah. And it was the ongoing context of her life that was the war that was most affecting her. Yes. So we were looking at her distress and saying, what's broken inside of you that needs healing? And we weren't, yes. we weren't looking at the context. And, you know, it was profound. Now, we were able to, to get her and the child out and eventually get them away to safety. But um, it took us a while to get there, and while we were figuring all this out, you know, her kid had lost the capacity to speak, and she had become profoundly traumatized. So, um, yeah, we often understand what's wrong with people as, you know, irrational thoughts or early trauma or biochemistry that can be changed with medication. And all of those have their place as explanations and treatments, but sometimes it, it's something as simple as altering the context. You know, a severely depressed Bosnian woman in the clinic who just wouldn't get better, uh, turns out she was so isolated and lonely in her apartment. What her therapist finally did that worked was he took her on the bus and the, and the train every day and they, they learned how to read. She learned how to read the map, the subway map and the bus map. And she suddenly was able to leave her apartment and didn't feel isolated. And so she could start making social contacts and attending events. Her depression lifted. Yes. It, it wasn't about just the war. It was about the circumstances of her present life. And that's one of the powerful things I've learned. Sometimes really small changes in the, in the, in the context of our lives have profound effects on our well-being. It's interesting. And sometimes at the most simple level, isn't it, when you're a manager or a leader or you're working in... You, you, you see people trying to become amateur psychologists rather than just sitting back and do what we said earlier, just listen. Yeah. Give people the I mean, space to to just talk, tell you what's going on without trying to fix them all the time. Well, that's it. I think, and this is, you know, I understand this, and I'm sure you've seen this too. I mean, you're obviously a wonderful listener. You know, I, I, I think people underestimate how much just listening is doing something. You know, you're listening to somebody who's telling you about something difficult in their lives, and you and you feel like, oh, I've got to give them the right advice. I've got to I've got to do something without realizing that by listening, without judgment, and and with support, with with empathy, you're doing something profound. Um, and what I actually find in my own experience is that if I listen long enough to someone, they usually come around to sort of knowing what they want to do. They, people so often know their solutions, but they're often very afraid um, of what those solutions imply. It might mean making a life change, or they just need the space to talk it through and to realize what it is they want to do. And so my advice, which they came looking for, 
ends up not being at all necessary. Ken, you've been, I, I could I say this a lot, but I really genuinely mean this. I reckon you and I could talk all day, and and this is absolutely fantastic. And I, I'm just learning so much from you, and I think our audience will be as well. Partly about this human spirit, about perspective, about the fact that you know your environment and what you can do yourself can actually help your own personal resilience. How how can people find out more about you? How can people find your book? Sure. Well, my book's available in England, uh, in the UK. It's available on Warchild, on Warchild UK. Uh, sorry, it, on uh, Amazon, Amazon yeah. rather, UK. <laughs> and any bookstore can order it, but uh, it's also available on Amazon as well. Um, you can learn more about me. I have a website. It's just kennethemiller.com. One word, kennethemiller.com. And from that main website, you can link to a couple places. You can link to my blog on Psychology Today or go directly to it. It's called The Refugee Experience, but it's, it's a little broader than that. I also write about mindfulness. I write about what makes for effective therapy and, and good, good, good helpers, good healers. And then I write a lot about you know, the experience of people affected by war. Um, to, to learn more about the book and to read excerpts from it and reviews of it, you can go to go to that, that same website, kennethemiller.com, and there's another blog on there called Dispatches from the Field. And if you click on that, you'll see, you know, you know, stories from the book itself, uh, as well as reviews. Ken, I hope many people read that book because actually, I think it's got, I think it's got a message as bigger than just resilience as well. And I think. Um, um, I absolutely commend it to you. And thank you so much for your time today. It's been absolutely brilliant. I've really enjoyed it. And hopefully, you know, people, other people listening in too is, have, have as well. And I hope they look at your website, consume the book. And who knows, perhaps we could uh, meet up again and do another podcast in the future because you've certainly given me real food for thought. Russell, it's been a pleasure. And I thank you for having me on. No pleasure. Good luck with the book. And uh, um, hopefully be in touch soon. You take care. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye now. Podcast useful. If you did, why not subscribe and listen to our other podcasts? We would love it if you could leave us a review. To access our resilience coaching, contact us at info at qedod.com. And finally, if you'd like to download our free resilience ebook, go to qedod.com/slash free ebook. Thanks for listening.